0: Well, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 18. So we'll be preaching today on Thyatira, the immoral church. But I want to begin by telling you about an episode that happened a few years ago. My wife was on the hunt for a sandbox for the children. And after scouring the internet, she finally found a family over in Asheville who was selling a used sandbox for $20. And to sweeten the deal, it was in the shape of a, of a tugboat, and it was in good condition. So we rode across town the same day, loaded it up in my dad's old van, and brought it home to 16 Pauling's place. And everything was happy, and everything was fun for a while. Uh, Daniel sure did love playing with his cars and trucks in the sand. What little boy doesn't have fun playing in the sand and the mud? But then one day, Caitlin was cleaning out the sandbox. She was taking the old sand out and putting new sand in. And as she was doing that, she noticed a menace had made its home in the sandbox. She spied in one of the little nooks and crannies there a black widow spider. Well, she turned the whole sandbox over to clean it, and as she did, she noticed underneath a mama black widow spider had moved in there and had built a nest, and there was a clump of eggs on the bottom of that thing. Well, it's important for you to know that my wife is absolutely horrified of spiders. (laughs) Amen? Anybody else out there? You've never seen a woman move like mine until there's an eight-legged creature in the room with her. She can make some moves up that you've never seen before. Well, and also you could add to that bees as well. But that's another story for another day. But I believe that her protective motherly instincts must have overridden her initial fear because she declared war that moment. And so the sandbox was thoroughly sprayed with spider killer. It was dusted with diatomaceous earth. And honestly, when she told me about it later that day, I really didn't think anything about it. In fact, I kind of just sort of shrugged my shoulders and said, you know, like typical guys, oh yeah, okay, that's nice, honey. Glad you took care of it. And kind of forgot about it and moved on with life. Some of you men are you acting like you don't know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. But as the summer wore on, there were more spider sightings. The little critters just kept coming back. And it got to the point where noise was being made, to the point where something had to be done. Mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. It's time to call in the big guns. And so we called the exterminator, and he came, and he sprayed around the house. And we thought, well, that will surely take care of the problem. But a few days later, there was another spider sighting. In fact, there was another spider curled up in one of Daniel's trucks that he played with outside. And so the exterminator had to be called back. Well, they came back for that second investigation. And the guy that came back was different from the first fella. He spent about five minutes, he walked around the house, and he walked over to the sandbox and pointed to it, and he said, right here's your problem. He said, this thing right here is a spider breeding ground. And I can remember he was uh, giving us options of different things that we could do, and Caitlin didn't even let him finish. She said, I know what I want to do. I want to burn it down. (laughs) No exaggeration. So needless to say, that was the end of the sandbox. That very day, it was cleaned out and it was listed on the Buncombe County Yard Sale website for free. <laughs> and the next day, somebody showed up at the house to pick it up and haul it off. Good riddance, right? Think about it. What was intended to be an object of fun, object of entertainment, ended up becoming a Trojan horse of our demise. We brought it into our own house thinking it would be a safe thing. Now, why do I tell that story? Because I think that is a great illustration of what happens when you tolerate sin in your personal life or even in the church. Spiders are a lot like sin. And like I did with that infestation, You know, we can make an excuse for sin in our lives. We can rationalize it. We can compromise. We can even brush it off like it's no big thing. My wife would come to me and say, I saw another spider today. And I'd say, "Huh? well, that's interesting, honey. What are we eating for dinner? We're clueless a lot of times. Why? Because sin is subtle. It can subtly creep into our lives. It can quickly multiply. And the longer we tolerate it, the longer... We allow it to live or explain it away the worse the infestation becomes until it's a real problem. The sin that we tolerate will soon become the sin that will dominate. In fact, that sin problem won't go away. The longer that you allow it to live it will keep coming back until you deal with it at its source. Now, All that by way of introduction to say that that was also the chief problem at the church in Thyatira. This church had been infiltrated by false doctrine, and when you have false doctrine, something always follows quickly behind it, sin. They had a lot in common with the sister church down the road, Pergamum, which we looked at last week. Thyatira, much like Pergamum, lacked discernment. They had a love affair with the world. They became comfortable with sin. And that's why I call them the immoral church. Now, as you study this letter, you'll notice that scholars have written a lot about it. In fact, Charles Erdman, one Bible scholar, gave this perspective about this church, Thyatira, in its placement among the seven. He said this, The letter to the church in Thyatira begins the second group of messages to the church of Asia. In the first group, the church of Ephesus was characterized by loyalty to Christ, but it was lacking in love. In Smyrna, loyalty was tested by the fires of persecution. And in the church at Pergamum, their loyalty was lacking discernment. Yet, all three of the churches were true to the faith and had not yet yielded to the assault of evil. But in the case of Thyatira, he said, as of Sardis and Laodicea, the situation was far more serious. The floodgates of immorality had been opened and a large number had yielded to the demoralizing influence of false teaching. Now, as you study the letter to the church at Thyatira, you'll notice quickly that this is the longest letter of the seven that is written. It's kind of ironic because... Thyatira was the smallest city of all the seven churches, and yet they received the longest correction. And because the Lord lingers over this church more than any other, it should catch our attention. This carnal church has some important warnings for us today. Namely, that sin and false doctrine are not to be tolerated in the church even under the popular banners that we hear today of love and unity and tolerance. So as we open this letter, it begins much like the others. Jesus notes the positive things. And so in verses 18 and 19, we see number one, the commendable works of the church. The commendable works of the church. Verse 18 And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Because he has eyes of fire, that means that he sees through. He has x-ray vision. Because his feet are like burnished bronze, that's a picture of judgment. Then in verse 19, here is the good part. He says, I know your works, your love, and your faith, and service, and patient endurance, and yet your latter works exceed the first. That's all the good that Jesus has to say about this church. Now, the only other time that Thyatira is mentioned outside this letter is in one place in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 16. In fact, Thyatira was the home of a businesswoman named Lydia. She was a dealer of fine purple cloth, we are told there in Acts 16, 14. Now, if you study that chapter, you find that Lydia traveled to a place called Philippi and there she encountered the Apostle Paul. She heard the gospel and was converted to Christ. And it's thought by many scholars that eventually Lydia returned back to her home there in Thyatira carrying with her the gospel and that she was one of the founding, one of the charter members of the church in Thyatira. So if that tradition is true, then this church had a strong heritage. They were just one person removed from the Apostle Paul. Now you'll notice here that in verse 19, the Lord had several good things to say about them. He said, I know your faith and your love, your works, your service, your patient endurance. And he had... Some positives to note. They were a loving church. They were a long-suffering church. And then we see that they were a laboring church because in verse 19 he says, your latter works exceed the first. So without a doubt, this church had a reputation of helping the hurting. They were known far and wide in their community as a church that cared And by all appearances, if we would have been living in the first century, if we would have looked from an outsider perspective at the church at Thyatira, we probably would have given them an A. And said, they're doing a lot of good things. Look at the church in Thyatira. But how many of you know that appearances can be deceiving? You can't necessarily judge a book by its cover, and you really don't know what's going on with the church until you get involved in the nuts and bolts and the individual lives of the people who make that church up. As I started studying this church and I read about it, its good things and its bad things, I thought a lot about a hive of bees that I kept last summer. Many of you know I'm a beekeeper and in my spare time I like to try and dabble in raising bees. Last year, I thought what I had was the best stand of bees that I had ever had. I watched these bees every day. They were busy working. They were always out. I was feeding them. I was treating them. And by all appearances, this was a healthy hive. They were in the garden. They were in the flowers. They were working. But then the day came for harvest. In late summer... The time came when I was going to pull the lid off of that thing and see all the honey that they had made. And I was excited. So I put my suit on and I went out to that hive, got the smoke billowing, and I pulled the lid off of that thing and I pulled the first rack out. And you know what was in there? There wasn't one single cell of honey in that whole hive. That hive was empty. It was destitute. And my heart sank when I saw that because I knew they won't last. They won't have anything to get them through the hard winter. They had worked all summer and had nothing to show. They were active. They were busy. They looked healthy. But deep inside the hive, there was something sick about it. Something was not right. And I didn't know until I started looking at the inner workings. And I thought about that hive and the churches that we see today. Even our own church. There are a lot of churches that are like that hive. They are busy with programs and classes and events. They are active in many good things in the world. By all outward appearances we would say that's a healthy church. They can boast about numbers and a big campus and a budget. But how many of you know that you can't judge everything by what you see on the outside? God doesn't look at the outside. What does He look at? The part that nobody else can see. And Thyatira, even though it could boast commendable works, it had a deep sickness inside called S-I-N. And you can't win with sin. So we see the commendable works of the church. Then as we move on in verse 20, we see the carnal wickedness in the church. Remember I told you this church was sick. Here was what was really going on. Verse 20, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. The Lord, with those flaming eyes of fire, looked into the heart of this church and He saw the dark underbelly. And Jesus pointed out in... This passage, the source of the problem was with a seductive prophetess whom he likened to the Old Testament villainous Jezebel. By the way, you don't hear any mothers naming their daughters Jezebel, do you? But there's a reason for that, because she's probably the most wicked woman in the Old Testament. What do we know about her? Well, in order to find out about her story, you have to go back to the book of 1 Kings. And in 1 Kings, we read that Jezebel was a foreigner to the land of Israel. She was a Phoenician, and she married the king known as Ahab, the king of Israel in the north. Jezebel and her people worshipped a god named Baal. And because of her unholy matrimony with Ahab, when she came into the kingdom of Israel, she brought with her that idolatry and that Baal cult with her. In fact, as you read 1 Kings, you see that Elijah's ministry, most of it is dealing with the idolatry and the immorality of Ahab and Jezebel as they set up that false cult. In fact, uh, Jezebel, if you read in 1 Kings, she actually executes many of God's true priests and installs her own priests to carry out her Baal worship. So, she must have been a ferocious woman because at one point in Elijah's ministry, he actually runs from her. (laughs) Listen to what the Bible had to say about her wicked influence. 1 Kings 16 verse 30. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as If it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. It's not a good thing to be likened to Jezebel. And so what Jesus is saying here is that just like that Old Testament villain, a woman in Thyatira had corrupted this church. It could have been the pastor's wife. We don't know exactly. But she brought in this destructive heresy and convince people that sexual immorality and paganism were acceptable to be married with Christianity. And just as Jezebel in the Old Testament married Baal worship with Jehovah God, this lady in Tower married worldliness and paganism and sexual immorality with Christ. And worst of all, the Bible says, notice about this church, I have this against you, that you tolerate this woman. In other words, the implication is they know the teaching is wrong, they know the immorality is wrong, and yet they allow it to exist and happen. It kind of makes you wonder as you think about your life and our church, what sin have we become comfortable with? What sin have we decided, that's, a, that's an okay sin. We can tolerate that and we can make an excuse for it. I've been quick to point out as we've studied the seven churches in Revelation that each of these churches also are prophetic in nature. In other words, that each church represents a different stage in church history. Remember Ephesus, the first church we looked at? That was a picture of the apostolic church. The church of the book of Acts and soon thereafter in the first century. Then we moved on to Smyrna. That was the persecuted church of the Second century and the third century, they were the ones oppressed by Rome. Pergamum. Last week, we found out that was the compromised church of the fourth and fifth century. The church under Constantine, where they were allowed to marry the church and the state together, and compromise began to happen. And that's when the Catholic Church came into existence in history. And so, with that, many people believe that Thyatira then represents the immoral church of the Middle Ages from about the year 500 all the way up to the 1500s before the Reformation begins, when the Catholic Church exerted their greatest pinnacle of power. Now, as the Catholic Church grew more and more powerful during this time, it also became more and more corrupt. In fact, you could make a huge list of all of the heretical teachings and all of the bad doctrines that came about during this time period. The Catholics taught and some still do today, salvation by works. The veneration of the Virgin Mary. Papal infallibility. The idea that when the Pope speaks, he speaks on par with the Word of God. The doctrine of purgatory. That kind of in-between realm between heaven and earth. If you're not good enough to go to heaven, you go there to work off your sins. They practiced simony, which was the selling of church offices. You could buy a bishop Or a priest position if you had the right price. They sold indulgences and holy relics. And in fact, you can still see the corruption of the Catholic Church today. All you do is turn on the news and look, it's one child abuse scandal, one sex scandal after another coming out of the Catholic Church. But there's something else also interesting in this text. When you study the downward spiritual spiral that progress through these four churches, you can see how it also happens in the life of the Christian. What was Ephesus' problem? They lost their first love. What happens with a Christian? They lose their first love with Christ. They drop out of coming to church. They no longer have a hunger for the Word of God. They stop praying and the fire in their heart cools. Then what happened when we got to Smyrna, we saw the persecuted church. They weren't disciplined by Christ, but hard times came into their life. Hard times always come. And if you don't have your first love when a hard time hits, you know what it's going to do? It's going to grind you down. It's going to wear away your faith. And then when Pergamon came along, there was compromise. So when you lose your first love and a hard time hits, and then you begin to make compromises and small places and dabble in things that once you thought were unholy. And then finally when you get to Thyatira, there's just open sin. And that same pattern can happen in the life of a Christian as well. We lose our first love, we get hit by a hard time, we compromise, and then we just stop trying to be holy and we get comfortable with sin. Now notice in verse 21, the chief problem that Jesus had here was this, he said, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. I don't have to preach too hard and long to convince you that the 21st century church today is wallowing in a cesspool of adultery and pornography and homosexuality. Let me give you just some statistics. In 2016, the Barna Research Group did a landmark study. The landmark study was called Porn in the Digital Age. Here's what they found. 41% of males under the age of 25 who consider themselves practicing Christians admitted a porn addiction. I think it's probably higher than that. And then they went on to say that males over 25 in the church 23% of them admitted to a porn addiction. This is in every church across our country. The study continued. Listen to this. They found that 57% of pastors, 57% of pastors struggled with a porn addiction currently or in the past. No wonder our pulpits are silent No wonder our pulpits are filled with men who have compromised with the world because they can't practice what they preach. Because the devil has run roughshod over their life and they're ensnared in a sexual addiction that they want to keep secret from their deacons and their wives and their people. The same study, listen to this, revealed... 35% of people who consider themselves born-again Christians believe that sex outside of marriage is morally acceptable. This is in the church. 41% of Christians believe that cohabitation before marriage is a good idea to see if two people will be compatible. Friend, I don't care what label you want to put on it, how you want to describe it, what modern spin you want to apply to it, the Bible says that's fornication and it is sin against the holy God. doesn't matter how we feel about it. Friend, I can take you down the road and show you family after family that I know personally whose marriage has been destroyed and whose children have been hurt because of pornography and because of sexual immorality and adultery and because they thought, oh, it's just a little flirtation. That's not even the end of it. Churches are gradually accepting the homosexual lifestyle today. Listen, in 2003, they polled evangelicals. 39% said, They supported same-sex marriage. You know what happened in just a few years? In 2017, they did the same poll again, asking Christians, what do you think about same-sex marriage? 62% in 2017 said, we're okay with it. Notice the jump in just a little over 10 years. How the shift in the culture has taken place in the church. In fact, in 2016... Has happened just down the road. First Baptist Church in Greenville, South Carolina, they made national headlines when they began permitting their ministers to officiate homosexual marriages. They also said that they would ordain any person regardless of sexual orientation and lifestyle to serve in a leadership role. They don't know it, but if you keep reading this letter, they're practically begging for the judgment of Christ against them. Listen, what one generation tolerates, the next generation embraces. And sin, once tolerated, seeks to be accepted. And then sin, once accepted, seeks to be celebrated. And that's where we are in our society at large. Forty years ago, thirty years ago, you would have never thought of seeing homosexuality paraded around the streets and celebrated. You never would have thought that the killing of an innocent baby would have been an issue 30, 40, 50 years ago. But now today, you're a hero if you have your abortion. You're courageous if you come out of the closet. Oh God, we have called what is evil good and good evil. And it's gotten into the church now. And friend, when the church becomes infected, And they tolerate sin. It won't be long till the judgment of God falls on His body. Because judgment begins at the house of God. D.L. Moody said this years ago. He said a ship lives in the water. But if the water gets into the ship, she goes to the bottom. Christians may live in the world, but if the world gets in them, they sink. No wonder... We hear these reports of the church dying in America. You know why? Because we've compromised, we've tolerated, so that there is no difference between the churchgoer and the atheist down the road. We believe the same things and practice the same things, such to the point where they look at the Christian and say, well, you believe in Jesus and there's no difference between you and me. Why would I waste my time? That's where we are. When there's no discernible difference between the world and the church. God help us. So where do we go from here? Number three, the critical warning to the church. This church was filled with carnal wickedness and Jesus gave them a critical warning. Now not everybody in Thyatira was living for the world. There were a few who were holding fast. But Jesus speaks first to the carnal Christian. Here's what he said in verses 22 and 23. Those who were living in sin, he gave them a promise of retribution. Notice this. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. Oh my goodness. That's Jesus meek and mild. Does that sound like a holy, righteous God? It's certainly not the God that you hear preached from most pulpits around our country. But we need to remember that Jesus Christ is holy. He's righteous. And He hates sin. He loves the sinner. Oh, He has grace and mercy and forgiveness everlasting for the sinner no matter what they've done. But His eyes are too pure and holy to even look upon a taint of sin. Now, as you study this, notice there's three principles about God's judgment that comes out very clear here from that passage. Here's what I would say. God's judgment is always slow. Meaning that it comes at the end of a long grace period where there has been ample time to repent. Did Jesus give this church time to repent? Yes. And He said they refused. God's judgment is not only slow, it's always sudden. In other words, when God's judgment hits, there's no time to escape. And then God's judgment is always severe. He says, look, I'm going to throw them on the sickbed and the children will die. Adrian Rogers said this years ago. He said, if you're living in sin, he said, you're either headed to the woodshed or you're headed to hell. You say, why is there so much immorality in the body of Christ? It's because we have lost sight of the fear of a holy God. We hear sermons about how God is loving and God is merciful and God wants to bless you and make you rich. But we never hear sermons about a God who says, I am holy, holy, holy. This is the same God. You can't just preach one side to the detriment of the other. He's holy and righteous and pure. And friend, we cannot even imagine being in His presence because of our sinfulness. Jesus said it like this. He said, don't fear the ones who can destroy the body. He said, fear the one who after destroying the body can cast the soul into hell. We've forgotten about the righteous indignation of a holy God who will judge sin unmercifully. I had a Christian worker one time who was living in sexual immorality. Dealing with a lot of what this passage was talking about, they were shacking up with somebody that they weren't married to. And I confronted them over the issue in the most loving way that I could. And I said, look, according to the Bible, this is fornication. This is sin. You need to repent. You know what the response that I got back was from them? Well... I know it may be wrong, but God understands and I can just ask for forgiveness later. Oh my goodness, friend. What makes you think you're going to live that long? Because the God that I read about in the Bible, He can strike somebody dead in an instant. He can judge those in His own family. And if you have that attitude today, if you have thought that, Let me tell you something, that's the attitude of somebody who doesn't understand the holiness of God, and I doubt if they understand salvation and grace and repentance either, because the grace of God is not a license to go out and sin, it's a desire to want to live a pure life for Jesus Christ based on the great gift of forgiveness that He's given you. Have they not read that our God is a consuming fire, and that He hated sin so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for sin. So why would I want to be entangled in something that caused the death of my Savior? So that's what he says to the carnal Christian. He promises them judgment. You know, another reason why I'm here. Another reason why there is immorality of this nature in the church today. Listen to me is because we have lost our backbone as preachers and as Christians to be confrontational and call sin what it really is. We are so tolerant toward political correctness today or in such fear that we are going to offend somebody that Christians have failed to be the voice crying in a wilderness, pointing out to people, God says this is wrong, you need to repent. Listen, we've got preachers today. God help us. We've got preachers today who are more concerned about making sure that people feel good when they leave their church than actually preaching to them the Word of God. That the wages of sin is death. Friend, if I don't tell you about sin and I don't tell you about God's holiness and God's judgment, then I don't love you. But I have to love you as God's shepherd. And you're not always going to leave this church on cloud nine. Because when I study the Word of God, oh, the Word of God will cut you. The Word of God will convict you. It will stab into the very depths of your heart because it's the Word of God. It sees through all of our facades and our excuses and our compromises. And friend, God uses it as a scalpel not to hurt us, but to heal us. I love you, church, enough to preach to you the truth of the Word of God. Even if it hurts, even if it stings, even if you walk out of here and say, that preacher's mad at me. I'm not mad at you. I care for your soul. And I care for the purity of God's people. So, he has a word to the carnal Christians. And then he has a word to the committed Christians. Look at this. If the judgment was bad, look at the reward. It's it's like night and day. To the committed Christians, he gives a promise to reign with Christ. Verse 24, he says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden." Oh my goodness. We've gone from one end of the spectrum to the other. Now notice here in this passage that Jesus is actually quoting Psalm 2 and verse 9. It's a messianic prophecy that is applied to Him. He shall rule them with a rod and iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel. And so what Jesus is saying here is, look, to those of you who haven't compromised with the world, who aren't involved in the worldliness... Hold fast to what you have. And if you stay committed, I will count you worthy to reign with Me. The authority that is given to Him by the Father, get this Christian, He's going to share it with the church upon His second coming. And so the Bible teaches that when Christ returns, He's coming back to this earth to set up His kingdom. And He will appoint faithful servants of the church to positions of authority. And that's what he's talking about here. And we'll rule them with a rod of iron, and I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give them the morning star. In other words, listen to me. Everything in this life as a Christian walks through is a dress rehearsal for eternity. And so, the level of responsibility that we are going to be given in the future age when Christ reigns is determined by our faithfulness to him right now in the present I can't think of a greater incentive to want to live a pure holy righteous life for Jesus Christ because he's keeping an account of everything he's seeing who's faithful and on the basis of that small faithfulness he's going to place us in the future in positions of authority wow I want to serve Him right now and be faithful so that I can serve Him in a greater way in His coming kingdom. And then notice, the Lord says that He's going to reward those with the morning star. And I will give Him, verse 28, the morning star. What does that mean? Remember I told you Revelation is full of titles for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Morning Star is just one of those many titles that we see Christ has in this book. In other words, what He says, look, overcome, persevere, hold fast to the faith, and one day you will see me face to face in all my radiant brilliance, and then you will say, it was worth it after all. There's no greater reason to live for Christ than to one day stand in His presence and say, Lord... I did the best I could. Lord, I tried to live a righteous life for You. Lord, I tried to serve Your church. Lord, I tried to bring as many people with me as I could. Let me close with this. Years ago, there was a great performer. He was a tightrope walker. He was from France. His name was Jean Gavlet. He was known as the Great Blondin. He wowed audiences all over the world with his amazing feats. In 1859, he was the first man to cross the gorge of the Niagara River on a tightrope. He stretched a rope on the Niagara River from Canada to the United States with the waterfall on the other side and a raging river on the other, and he walked from one side to the other. Audiences swooned and reporters gathered around him to get the report and they asked him, the newspaper men, they said, Great Blondin, how did you keep your focus? How in the world did you stay on that little wire as you crossed over with all the pressure and with death below you and a raging waterfall? How did you keep your focus? And he brought them over to a simple piece of ground. And he said, look there. He said, you see that pole? He had put a pole in the ground. And on the top of it, he had put... A silver star. And he said, this star right here was my reference point. He said, as I walked across the tightrope, I kept my eyes fixed on that star. And as I focused in on that star, that's what gave me stability and that's what helped me keep my way. And friend, here's what I want to say to you. We have a bright and morning star. His name is Jesus Christ. And friend, when you set your eyes upon Him, when you zero in on His life, when you follow behind Him with all that you have, friend, sin looks real ugly. Sin looks dirty. Sin isn't attractive because you are so drawn to the beauty of Christ and wanting to please Him and wanting to be filled with His peace and His joy that you wouldn't trade anything in the world just to be one step closer to your ultimate goal of falling before the Lord Jesus Christ and saying finally, I've made it home. I've made it home. So keep your eyes focused on the bright and morning star. And when you do that, nothing from this world will distract you from staying on the straight and narrow. Because the world has less and less to offer you. And Jesus is so sweet. Amen.